Yo, yo, hello, party people, VUX world, welcome to VUX world. I'm your host, Kane Sims, and I am delighted to welcome our sponsor, Deepgram, to this episode. This episode is present- presented by Deepgram. Deepgram are uh, one of the world's leading uh, uh, speech recognition uh, companies, automatic speech recognition companies. They are doing tremendous work. Companies all over the world are using Deepgram to power their conversational and voice AI efforts. It's actually being used, companies have been built on top of Deepgram, which is crazy to, <laughs> to think of. They have immense accuracy, 90% in some cases, you can, unlike most other models, especially from the large cloud providers, you can actually retrain DeepGram's models pretty easily, and therefore you can increase the accuracy, train it on your specific domains. Um, it's it's very cost-effective, especially when you consider some of the prices that some of the big boys charge, or big people, big boys and girls, should we say. Uh, uh, so definitely do check out DeepGram if you are in the market for some speech recognition technology. Visit deepgram.com forward slash VUX world. That is deepgram.com forward slash VUX world. Now, our guest today uh, has probably some of the uh, most impressive track record when it comes to uh, AI and voice AI specifically. Ex-Amazon Alexa, uh, one of the founders of the Alexa Prize. We're definitely going to get into the history behind his experience at Alexa and the Alexa Prize. The work that he started off has led into Alexa Conversations. A lot of you will be familiar with Alexa Conversations. It's Amazon's essentially automated conversational AI uh, technology that, that just builds conversations for you with very little uh, input from conversation designers or developers, which is crazy. Uh, spent some time at Uber, found a member of Uber's conversational AI group, uh, and is now the head, uh, chief scientist and head of conversational AI at Got It AI. And we're going to get into Got It AI, what it does, uh, and how it is changing the game. I would like to welcome to VUX World, Chandra Katri. Chandra, welcome. Um, thanks, Ken, for the uh, in, for inviting and as well as in, uh, this warm introduction. Uh, looking forward to this podcast. Likewise, likewise. Yeah, as I was saying, you have got some absolute immense experience. I kind of touched on some of it, but it's always nice coming from the proverbial horse's mouth, should we say. Can you just tell everybody a little bit about yourself, who you are, your background, and, and what you do at God AI? Awesome. So, um, hello, everybody. Uh, so, I think... Uh, I will try to keep it short. Uh, so about myself, uh, I've been in the AI space for a decade now. Uh, have mostly on the forefront of deep learning based uh, AI systems. And uh, in the conversation AI space for the past seven, eight years, uh, uh, started my journey at eBay Research when you know the deep learning was beginning to happen. And therefore we built eBay shop, a shopping assistant at that time. It, I'm talking about 2014 or so. And then Alexa happened. And naturally, I got pulled into Alexa. I happened to be the founding member of Alexa Prize, Alexa AI. Uh, built a lot of uh, things w- while uh, being at Alexa. You know that Alexa was Amazon was never primarily a speech company or a or a conversational AI company or NLP company per se. It was a you know a different company at that time. Uh, and Google primarily was a search NLP speech uh, kind of company. So uh, it was a it was a time to be there to build things from scratch and you know scale and impact. Uh, millions, hundreds of millions of consumers. So uh, that's why I happen to be part of that that space uh, at Amazon Alexa. And then uh, uh, left, I mean, let Alexa Prize from scratch. It is now it has now become the uh, or Amazon is so, trying to address the holy grail of conversational AI, which is open domain conversational AI through Alexa Prize. And we did a lot of good work with university teams and partnerships 
that and that I was part of the journey. I'm glad for that. And then after that, I happened to be part of Uber AI, where uh, we've built the conversation AI group, built driver assistant uh, or assistant which can help drivers while they're driving. Uh, that is something which we build. And we also released something called Plato, which is uh, one of the first uh, model-based, completely model-based conversational AI toolkit, which is open source. And now at Got it AI, we uh, are, uh, my team is building, uh, trying to build one of the first fully autonomous conversational AI system. When I'm saying autonomous conversational AI system, it means uh, you have data, historical data, and with that data, automatically a bot is created. And now that bot could be any kind of bot. It could be an email, chat, a voice, any kind of bot. Given any historical data, we have these models or we have built those models which can automatically get you the bot without any human in the loop or without any human annotation. Of course, when there is human in the loop, the performance could be better. It could be, uh, the quality could be better, but that's our vision. That is what we're trying to achieve. Mm, interesting, interesting. See, I told you all, it's a very impressive track record. And speaking of the Alexa Prize, we're actually uh, coming up in December, a couple of weeks from now, we will we'll be speaking to uh, Jan Sedevi of uh, one of the Czech universities who actually won the Alexa Prize for the social bot uh, last, this year just gone, literally a couple of months ago. Um, so uh, let's, uh, we're definitely going to get into the Got It AI technology because I'm definitely keen on that. We've, as I mentioned, uh, we've been, people who've been tuning in recently have, have seen that we've been getting into a lot of this kind of like talk around intentless NLUs and this kind of stuff. And so I definitely want to get into that. <clears throat> on the Alexa prize side of things though we'll stick there for for a moment given that given that we have Jan coming up and you were such a big part of the putting that together what are for those that are listening creating chatbots most of the or voice bots most of the time you're working in a specific domain aren't you you're a mm-hmm. bank you're building something for people to activate a credit card or you're an insurance company and you're trying to give people policy details or whatever you, you're always confined to this sort of domain specific stuff whereas as you alluded to there the Alexa Prize is very general open-ended the aim is to have a conversation for 20 minutes about anything what are some of the in your experience what are some of the challenges when people try and build or design more open-ended conversations that are not really narrow and domain specific so I think the biggest aspect of it is how to evaluate such systems that's one uh, and second, which is slightly less complicated, but second most important factor is data. Where would you get this data? So let's start with the first one, which is evaluate. You see, evaluating a task-based system or a closed domain system uh, is very easy. Uh, if I'm looking for a banking application, I know, you know I'm looking for credit card information. I might be looking for uh, some account information, stuff like that. So there's a goal associated with it. And because there's a goal, it is easy to evaluate. So let's say there's a bot one. I mean, there's a bot one, there's another bot, bot two. And then you can compare which one is better because you can look at the accuracies, you can look at the task success rate, success rate precision recall, all this kind of good stuff. Uh, but uh, when you come to open domain system, there is no such task per se. You know, you and I are talking, there is no goal. Of course, the goal, one of the goal could be in engaging ourselves on the conversation or engaging the audience, but it is a very subjective thing. You know, it's, it's very, because it is subjective, uh, it becomes very hard. I can give another example and I can give an example on how, why evaluation is hard in this setting. Uh, let's say if I ask you a question, what do you think about Obama? Uh, you know, millions of people, billions of people will give different answers. And all of them are right in their own way because it's an opinion question. It is something which is based on their own uh, knowledge, right? So, or experiences. Now, each one of them is correct. That's open domain. How are you going to train a model which kind of addresses all of these answers? Unlike driverless cars or autonomous cars, 
uh, a car has to stop. There is always one goal. If there's a red light, it has to stop. If it's a, if it is green light, it has to go. And if what is the speed limit, it has to follow that speed limit. That does not happen in open domain dialogue systems because there is no way to evaluate. It is highly subjective. So that is one of the biggest challenges. Other challenges is data. When you are setting up a challenge where you want a bot to talk about anything and everything, uh, that means uh, there is you have to kind of get the entire web in a way to get that data. And then parsing that data, Google search currently give you answers only for a short query and that too it is not contextual. You search something, get results. The most contextual part of it is Google might give you, based on your historical preferences, it can give you something more relevant to you. But that is a very simple problem compared to having a multi-turn, 20-minute conversation where you know, a bot talk to you about something which has happened in the past, let's say 10 minutes ago, right? Mm -hmm. So that is a very challenging problem. So these are a couple of areas where, which makes Alexa Prize a unique challenge to be. And you mentioned Jan, Jan is a good friend. He has been, him and his team has been, they're part of the Alexa Prize since the first iteration of the competition. Yes, you mentioned that actually. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, suppose because that that's then where you can spot that often if you use uh, some kind of uh, bot, either a chatbot or a voice bot, that is very open-ended. You can often tell that it doesn't always understand what you've said because the response sometimes is vague enough to keep the conversation stringing along, but it's not necessarily what a human would kind of respond to, so to speak. There's a, I imagine there's a few tricks that you can play in areas where you haven't fully properly understood what's being said. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Agreed, agreed. I think understanding by itself is not very well defined problem. What current AI systems are doing, are including OpenAI, GPT-3, and a bunch of other systems, is that mm. they are mimicking the data. They're mimicking the past experiences. So uh, are they understanding or not? That is, there's a big branch going in that direction, whether these AI systems, are they even capable or, of comprehension? Or are they simply mimicking? Because they do not generate something new. They only mimic what they have seen historically or some of those things. So understanding is a more abstract concept. And uh, uh, although we use NLU, natural language understanding in conversational AI systems a lot, but it's, it's, it's in a way we have designed to make them work. But the real understanding, we don't know what it is yet, at least from the context of AI systems. Mm, interesting. What are some of the, because um, I think there's, there's, there's definitely going to be a parallel here with what Got AI is doing, because you're also potentially, in some cases, I don't want to say flying blind, because you, you're going to be using data as the basis, which is domain specific. So you're going to have an understanding. <clears throat> and we'll, we'll, we'll get on to that. But what are some of the, like some of the best innovations that you've seen come out of the Alexa Prize to try and get a grasp on on those things. One is evaluating and the other one was, what was the other one, multi-turn conversation? How to ingest all of the data from web to talk about any topic, politics, mm -hmm. news, movies, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. Mm -hmm. so, so, so without spoiling the future podcast with Jan, <laughs> what are some of the things that you've seen come out of the Alexa Prize in your time that, that like have helped further this or some of the most interesting things you've seen come out of it? Uh, a lot of things, actually. Um, uh, I mean, I can go in many directions, but uh, first thing which uh, happened to come out was, uh, uh, which which is academics, or, you know, uh, especially in the past 10 years, a lot of the researchers have moved from academia to industry because industries, of course, pay well, and industries these days are re having research and track records similar to even better than academia. 
So there was a big challenge for uh, for academia to get get hold of data, which these industries have. So the biggest contribution here, which I see, is that Amazon Alexa Prize has provided millions of conversations to uh, these universities so that they can solve fundamental problems such as open domain dialogue systems or any kind of research that they have, which currently academia did not have any uh, access to. And because of that data, in the past five, 10 years, five years actually, so much has come out of Alexa Prize and the data related to it, you know, so much data, you know, uh, so many problems have been solved, language model problem. In fact, even if you look at GPT-3 or language models, a lot of those, like building an, a, a bot which can talk about anything, if you look at or everything traced back to Alexa Prize. So that is one thing, and 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 the research supporting that has come from the data from Alexa Prize. That has been one of the uh, uh, contribution. Another one I would say is when I, we were at Amazon. Now, but that is a contribution to the community. Now, mm. talking about the contribution to Amazon, um, uh, one thing that we built, uh, we built many things, but one of the things was uh, building an offensive uh, detection system. So uh, typically, when you when you scale, when you when you have a system which is uh, providing uh, or which is which is for hundreds of millions of users. Of course, uh, people talk about uh, consumers talk about everything, right? And some of that thing could be offensive. It could be inappropriate. So we built something, you know, uh, offensive and inappropriate de- detection system, which is sort of unsupervised, self-supervised kind of system, and uh, which made it very much powerful and made Alexa Prize. Uh, uh, it, it became one of the core components of Alexa Prize, and then later on became part of Alexa as well. Uh, another thing after uh, uh, was Alexa conversations. Uh, one of the main objectives of uh, Amazon Alexa Prize, I mean, it, uh, it came from Rohit Prasad, who is head of Alexa, who founded Alexa, uh, was that can we learn, can we ingest learnings from Alexa Prize into making Amazon better? And that's how Amazon Alexa or Alexa conversations uh, also became part of it. Basically, a lot of the learnings, the way this dialogue systems, the way model-based dialogue systems, model-based dialogue manager and those things, actually, uh, a lot of the things came or in Alexa conversations are influenced from Alexa Prize. So, and therefore, it's the same team. They work together. Uh, so so I think Alexa Prize also has a good influence on Amazon ecosystem, inclu- in, including the Amazon or Alexa developer community as well. So Alexa has this developer uh, uh ecosystem and a lot of things actually Alexa Price has shaped that as well in the past few years. Mm, interesting. The Alexa Conversations is an interesting one and maybe this is a segue into some of the work that you're doing at Got it AI, which is the ability for um, the ability to generate multi-turn dialogues or at least the right kind of response to a query mm-hmm. based on very little training data. Mm-hmm. And that's kind of what Alexa Conversations does in a nutshell. I suppose you provide it with some examples of some sample dialogues and then it runs off and figures out the nature of the conversation and a path through that conversation. Mm-hmm. Is is there parallels with Alexa Conversations and with what you're doing at Got it AI? Uh, Got it AI is one step further. Uh, Alexa Conversations, you have to provide some examples. And then uh, I, I don't want to talk about a lot of the technologies I know, but one thing which is open, which Alexa has come out, is that they have a simulator which simulates. You give a few examples, it will simulate more scenarios, and those scenarios are used to train uh, a more scalable system at Alexa, or which became part of Alexa. Uh, that part is very similar to something which we did at Uber a couple of years ago called Plato Dialogue System. So it had a simulator, reinforcement learning-based system, which generates data, and that data is used to train a system. Gaurid AI is slightly different. 
you don't have to provide those paths or those samples. You simply provide historical data. It's it's like this, you know, uh, I simply give you the data without any annotation. Like there's no annotation. In Alexa conversation, you still have to provide some annotations, some samples. Here, you don't have to do anything. And with transformers, it is possible to identify the intense uh, slots, uh, dialogue flows automatically. And that is the IP, that is the patent or technology that we have built. It Yes, it surely depends on historical data, but you don't have to provide those paths or those intents and stuff like that. It goes beyond. And uh, with that historical data, models themselves discover. So we call it discovery-based conversational AI. They discover, and then you already have a bot coming, uh, which which is fully functional. Interesting. So we've kind of touched on on this terminology in previous episodes. If anybody has listened to the one we did recently with Jason Mars, that was a really good episode. And we spoke about that philosophy of not needing to provide gender. Those that have built conversational systems before, and a lot of our listeners obviously have done, we do have people who are probably a bit earlier in that journey and are just kind of getting into it. Essentially, the way that the vast majority of NLU systems work is that if you have an intent, which might be order and intent, order something typically you would need to provide training data to train that intent wouldn't you i'd like to order a pizza please can i have a pizza order me a pizza now or a bunch of different ways of saying that kind of thing that trains the nlu and therefore the idea is that the model is trained on your samples which means that any other similar sounding samples it will train it'll map to that kind of intent what we're discussing here is the ability to generate the ability for someone to say something for the bot to understand what was said and then provide the response back to it without somebody being able to having to provide any training data whatsoever. Is that right? Yes. Yes. Perfectly. Uh, and sometimes you can generate those examples to, to for auto intents or sometimes you can discover from it as well based on historical data. Mm. But yeah, they both are kind of aligned uh, towards, but it's a great, the way you summarize it's the, the best way we could uh, do it. We could say, yeah. Thank you. Uh, <laughs> that's unusual. <laughs> um, the, the term transformers and transformer models is another term that has been used often over the last couple of weeks on, on the podcast as we've been talking to companies like Got AI, like uh, Zero Shop Bot, like Vlooper, you know, like Hyro, who kind of use this kind of transformer approach and i know that there's a lot of people listening who are not technical and not developers i'm one of those people but i'm wondering whether we can explain what it is we mean when we say a transformer model and and what that actually does Mm -hmm. i will try to keep it very simple um so transformers is a deep learning technology Uh, it's a type of neural network which is contextual. So for example, I can give an example. I will not go into details of what the model is, but I can talk about what it does. Mm -hmm. So uh, if I use word blue, blue can mean many things based on the context. If I say blue whale, I'm referring to a mammal. If I say sky is blue, I'm referring to color. If I say I'm feeling blue today, it probably is emotion. When I say blue, uh, if I say blue label, I'm probably referring to alcohol. So based on the context, meaning of the word changes. And therefore, you need models or you know AI systems which can understand the context and based on the context, give you a representation of the input. So an AI system, an AI model, which based on the context can showcase different representation 
that probably will be the most powerful system similar to how humans do right we know that based on how the based on the context we know this thing means this this means thing this this thing means that that and so on so on we want that kind of system and that's what transformers are uh, transformers uh, primarily call attentions attention based system they basically based on the context give you a different representation so that's transformers very simple layman mm. uh, what it does uh, i can go into details of the models uh, but i will leave that to you if you want to if you want to go in that direction but this is what transformers does which no no other system has done in historically and that is what makes them very powerful now having said that uh, so that means transformers are more powerful in terms of understanding you can build better systems which can understand better given an input because they're trained on context because they're trained on context basically exactly 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 they learn to uh, give representation based on the context as you said mm-hmm. so uh, so understanding part is good we know that okay it is better it is one of the most powerful systems for understanding and that's why bert and all those systems came up but uh, let's take it further uh, these models or bert or gpt3 people have read about them a lot but in in layman language what these systems are they are plain language models and let's see what language model mean language model is simply what it means is being able to predict next word given historical words so think of it like a kid a kid who is learning a language you know a kid starts with mama that is the first word they will mama pa that those are the first words they start with dog and then they start to uh, use two words mama water mama uh, papa toy so they start using two three words two words and three words and four words so if you look about how humans have evolved or the way language is learned is called language modeling kids tend to learn sequence of words what is the next word given historical words that is language modeling and that is exactly what transformers do which no other nlp system has done i mean in the context of this is that these models are trained to simply predict next word given historical words and therefore they are great generative models as well and that is why we have seen many applications around you know transformers can be used to generate uh, stories movie scripts uh, you know gpt3 can be used to type, generate any kind of stuff emails and etc 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 right so that is what these systems are they are very good in understanding because they, they account for context and they are very good for generating the sequence because once you provide millions of documents or millions of web data billions of documents then these model become better and good thing about transformers compared to any other previous deep learning models is that they have vertical architecture uh, what it means is that i can scale it as much as i want i can have many many transformer blocks from 10 million parameters to 100 million parameters to billion parameters it only is a factor of how much compute you have and money you have and that's why google facebook amazon openai they've trained models with hundreds of billions of parameters and trillions of parameters because there's no limit the only limit is how much money and compute you have that's it uh, so that's what makes them uh, and similar to how humans humans have so many neurons that's why we have the most comprehension capabilities because we have so many neurons so transformers give has three advantages one it accounts for context two it learns to generate because it is a language model and three you can scale them that means you can make them as complicated as you want add more parameters add more data and it will learn more so these three things makes them super powerful interesting that is very interesting uh, you might have answered this or touched on it at least in part uh, richard wozeka and shout out to richard he is rife with the questions on this show he is always he's always got very good questions and he is always there uh, so thank you richard for your continued support and for asking these questions um does context here mean uh, words that are around the word like blue 
Or can these transformers use more sophisticated meaning of context? As uh, in what was said previously in a conversation for argument's sake or other parameters like environment, etc. Um, uh, great question. And, and Richard, I'm glad that you brought it up. Uh, the later part of your question is actually part of research. Community is still trying to understand, which I also sort of touched upon earlier, is that what is meaning? We don't know that in the context of AI systems. But I would like to answer that question. It's a great question. Uh, I think uh, transformers do account for context, like historical terms, like historical, what has been said historically, one or two words. So it is not just the words around. It also accounts for historical sentences or preferences, which is sort of extension from word to more phrases, if I will. Uh, now, there is one more thing which goes beyond the words and sequence of words in history, which is um, being able to uh, replace words. For example, uh, great can replace good or bad can replace worse. So uh, once these models have seen a lot of this data, they know that these words means kind of can replace each other. So there is some kind of abstract level meaning attached to it. These models learn that the representation of word good would be very similar to representation of word great. Very, very close. Mm. Uh, and that is one thing. And also uh, sometimes even comprehension tasks like what women is to queen is man is to king. They also learn these patterns as well because of the representations. So uh, given historical data, they turn to learn these things. But the question here is, is it learning or is it mimicking? We don't know that answer yet. Because of the data, they know, okay, these, these can replace, but if they can replace, does, do, are they also able to comprehend and understand that part we don't know yet? But yes, it works. When you provide the data, that works. Interesting. When we spoke to Nikolai from Vlupa, he used the term symbolic AI as a representation of that analogy you just gave, which is that if somebody says bus and car, then it knows that they are vehicles. Or no, I think... He used a better example, which is something like uh, Socrates is a man, and if something other, I can't exactly even remember the example that he gave, but it was it was all to do with building relationships between unrelated things that have some connection between them, basically. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Yes, 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 and they tend to map. We see these observations. Uh, there's a lot of research around uh, whether. Uh, uh, and, and symbolic AI is a great way to understand because symbolic AI gives you comprehension capabilities. Typically, if you go with neural networks themselves, we don't know what is happening. It's like more like a black box. Even though I know how it works as a system, as a training, as a model, but I don't know what it is doing at, at the comprehension level. But symbolic AI kind of gives you that capability. It explains, you know, why this happened, why this relationship you know, why these two things are related, all those things. So that's why symbolic AI is very important. If you go for interpretability, if you want to go for explainability. And uh, and I see I see that these two things are merging, like black box AI, deep learning based or transformer based black box systems, black box systems. And we also have symbolic AI systems, which kind of provide you this comprehension capabilities. And I think as we tend to, as these two things tend to merge, we will have more powerful and more comprehensible systems. Mm, interesting. We've got a question from Leslie. Leslie, if you wouldn't mind, um, I don't know if I fully comprehend that question. If you wouldn't mind rephrasing it, if you don't mind, and then we'll we'll, we'll put it to Chandra uh, afterwards. Um, so, when it comes to to Gotta AI, then you have you have 
presumably you have these transformer models at work. Um, you mentioned there that Google, Amazon, etc., have pretty much unlimited budgets and therefore they can have billions and trillions of parameters and all that kind of stuff. Um, what is it that, that Got It AI has at the... We'll, we'll talk about the core and then we'll, we'll bring it out over and say what is the impact of having that. So you have some technology at the core that enables some interesting things to happen over here. What is it at the core of this technology? Is it is it this transformer-based NLU system? Like, I wonder if you can explain how what we've just explained about what a transformer model is and the the scalability of it and all the stuff that Amazon, Google, et cetera, can do. How is that related to what Gotit AI is doing? Mm-hmm. Uh, great question. That uh, ties a lot to the secret sauce, but I think I would love to answer that question. <laughs> what, you mean you're not going to come on here and share all your secret sauce? <laughs> yeah, yeah. So I would love to. So the, in layman terms, what I want to say here is that, so our CEO, Peter Allen, what he says is that user is the best paraphraser. I mean, you know, you don't need, I mean, designers do a great job in designing these conversational AI systems and stuff like that. Uh, but, uh, and that is great. That's how we have been doing for the past 20 years. They have done, they have provided immense or they have immense contribution in this field. But, you know, users have provided you data. Like when, with historical interactions, you know, let's, let's take an example of uh, an email conversation or a voice conversation. When you have those conversations, you have data of the agent who is supporting and a user who has a query. So you already have those paraphrases. You already have that data. So what we do is we simply leverage it. Now, how we leverage it, that's the secret sauce, Mm -hmm. but that is what we do. We leverage all the historical data for NLU understanding, for uh, even dialogue management, because we know what are the different, you don't need to explicitly build the flows because you have that data already. Now, how would you obtain these flows? That's the secret sauce again. And third thing is generation. Generation was a secret sauce, but not anymore because of the GPT-3, all those language models. People can train generative models uh, with in a controlled way. Uh, so that part is now more understood. People can do it uh, when you have enough data. So that I can always share. But the understanding and dialogue management part, how we do it automatically with historical data, that's the secret sauce, but that's, this is what we do. Right. Interesting. That, that makes sense. So th- this might tie into Leslie's question. Thank you, Leslie, for uh, rephrasing that. And apologies for my uh, my dumbness in interpreting the first thing. Sometimes it's difficult to try and listen and also read at the same time. And so sometimes I don't understand things. So, so Leslie's question is, uh, I use words that reflect my education and age that may be like non-standard, uh, if, for example, dearth or vexed. And then you've also actually, on top of that, you've just got general regional slang and dialects and stuff like that. So individuals use specific vocabularies and non-standard ones are not well understood in traditional NLU systems or traditional AI kind of models. How, how does that work when it comes to this transformer model situation or the, the, the work that you do at Got it AI? Is it related to what you just spoke about in terms of what you ingest? Or I'm wondering if you can just elaborate on, on how that works. Uh, yeah, I would love to answer this from the context of transformers first. Uh, uh, by the way, great question, Leslie. Uh, and I will touch upon few short learning here as well, uh, which kind of leads to it. So you know what? The good thing about transformers or these language models are you can train them and then you can reuse them. It's like a, it's like a recipe. You know, when you, you, when you cook a recipe, people have done so much work in how to make a pizza. Right, you know, centuries have gone in building the best pizza. Right now, 
once that recipe is there, you can always fine tune. Let's say if I am an Indian, I might add some masala to it or some sauce to it, which is curry sauce to it, to make it more uh, something to make it more closer to me. If let's say uh, someone uh, who likes sweet, they might add something more to it, right? And so on, so on, right? So people have different preferences, so they can fine tune based on what they have. But the recipe is the same, sort of, right? There's some nuances to it which are added with minimal. And if I want to add some those nuances, I don't have to create the entire recipe of pizza. It's there. I just need to fine tune a few things. Might might want to replace the sauce itself, right? That's what happens here, and that's what kind of ans uh, answers your question, Leslie, as well. We have with Bert and Transformers, there are pre-trained language models, and I've touched upon language models earlier. You have these pre-trained language models that is like a recipe. It's there. Now, with very few tweaks, you can make it work for all these personalization, all the tweaks which you talked about, which are non-standard, right? Which is custom to your application. And that is what happens here. These BERT and all these language models that are trained. Companies who have their own domain-specific applications or different languages, you know, the languages which are not very common or very popular, they provide to they need to provide only a few examples of their domain of or of their dialect or language, and then model works largely. So that is how it works. Interesting. Interesting. So so there's essentially almost like let's say for argument's sake, uh, you work with I don't know, um, a financial organization or a retailer or whatever it is that have very um, specific dialects, jargons, mm -hmm. whatever it might be. <clears throat> you then just need to essentially make some adjustments yes. at least to, to reflect that. But but the the foundation fundamentals stay the same, but but you essentially can make tweaks essentially to yeah. and those tweaks, the right direction. Yes, and for those tweaks, you don't need to provide a lot of data only a few examples, and that is called as few short learning. That is, you need to provide only a few, few short examples or few examples, and you get very high accuracy, as opposed to if you were to train from scratch, you will require thousands and millions of examples. Now, maybe just five, 10, 100 max. That is very feasible, and you get 90 plus, 95 plus, 97% accuracy. Interesting. Got a question here from Carlos Vukin. Thank you, Carlos. Uh, very inspiring. Uh, building language models without training data seems pretty hard. Uh, what part does transfer learning play in this transformer-based approach? I'm wondering whether it might be worth defining transfer learning. That's another term that gets brought up quite a lot. What is transfer learning and does transfer learning play a role in the transformer-based approach? Uh, I mean, Carlos, thanks for this question. Uh, uh, this is what the foundation of these language models is. Transfer learning means you uh, first train from scratch something for something, for some task, let's say. So let's say BERT or GPT-3, they were trained on, let's say, Reddit data or Wikipedia data. Language model was trained on whatever data is on the web. Let's take Reddit and Wikipedia as an example, right? Now, that model is there. That's pizza. That's our base pizza, right? Now, if I want to tweak on, let's say, financial domain, let's say Chase Bank or you know Bank of America, I just need a few examples. So what I do is I take this, my base pizza, and I simply transfer this pizza to that banking application and put some or do some minor adjustment to it. So transfer learning is have this common base or base thing and use it for different application. And that's why we call it transfer. It was trained for something else. The base model, the base pizza probably was built by uh, Romans, right? Now, uh, or maybe Greeks, there is a debate going on who built that, but the <laughs> point is uh, somewhere there, they built the base pizza. Now that base pizza was, uh, uh, was 
it was designed for those people or that area, then we take it, whoever want to use it for their own domain or application, they simply make those tweaks. And that's why it is transferred. Now, the task that we are doing is probably different from what they have done. They have done for their own use cases, for, own, for their own flavors, for their own population, but we want it for our population or for our use case, right? Uh, so if you're building a pizza, which was designed for adults, which was more spicy, now if you want to give it to kids who like more sweet, you might want to make it more sweet. So the application has changed, but the baseline is still the same. And that's what transfer learning means. Have a base thing and transfer it to a different domain and then tweak. Mm, wicked. So this means then ultimately that this model, let's say, and it's interesting actually, I didn't, I didn't pick up, I didn't comment on this, but I think what is interesting in, in the instance that you're talking about here that is different to some of the other examples that we've spoke about in the past is that, for example, when we spoke with uh, Jason Mars, who was talking about zero shot bot, very similar approach. What they, what he was talking about though, is ingesting things like content from knowledge bases, websites from an organization, and then the model is created to basically answer questions, and it uses the content as a way of answering the question. There's, there's inevitably some some manual intervention there to make sure that what the bot responds with is succinct enough and it's written in a conversational way and all that kind of stuff. But that's the fundamental principles. What you're talking about though is ingesting previous conversations and then generating presumably multi-turn conversations off the back of that. Is that right? Yes, yes, uh, yes. Uh, uh, along those lines, yes, yes. Right. And, uh, and, but there is uh, Jason's uh, point is also uh, valid and it is very much related, which is when you have knowledge bases, when you have documents, knowledge bases and documents can also be treated as historical data. Correct. I mean, it, it's not just the conversations. They, even you can also have knowledge base. You can have anything in there because these models are good enough to convert any textual data, text data in the form of text, data in the form of speech, any kind of language. Because essentially, they are language models, right? Any sequence of words can be ingested. Now, it could be knowledge documents and knowledge bases as well. So yes, it is very much related to what he said. But what we do is taking historical conversations and then being able to generate on the fly for different use cases. Mm. And is this confined specifically to chat or is there a voice element here as well? Does it matter? Uh, it, it, it will work for voice as well. But so far, given that historically we have ASR, which converts speech to text and then text to speech, um, what so far people have been doing is the chat, the system which is designed for chat works for speech as well. There are some nuances though. Speech or spoken language is more open and or it's more free form. It sometimes has repetitions. It has errors because ASR can make errors. And that's why we have DeepGram. Uh, so it's a great company. So point is that there could be some ASR errors and uh, that, and there are some nuances in spoken language as opposed to textual language. Textual language does have lesser errors. Spoken language have more repetitions, more nuances to it. So there are some tweaks on how to make them work for voice or speech, but generally by and large, the core technology is the same. But where things are going is eventually, uh, I don't know when there will be completely speech to speech systems as well. And Facebook recently published a paper, maybe a month, two months ago, like speech to speech translation. There are systems where you don't even need to convert speech to text. It's just speech and speech out, which is also language. Because, you know, if you look at kids who learn language, they don't know words yet. A kid who is three years, four years old, they don't know what words are uh, like in linguistic way. Mm -hmm. They know in spoken way because that's what they've learned mama water i need mama i need water and maybe can you mama can you please go and play with me mm. so they are able to speak those things because uh, they have learned those in a spoken form 
or speech form, right? So we can make the systems, systems work, but the reason why we do speech to text or text to speech is because all of our database, all of our knowledge base is in the form of text. To make it more scalable system databases, to connect with databases, we do speech to text and text to speech, but the technology is the same. You can always do speech to speech as well. Mm, yeah, yeah. There's some definitely interesting things happening on the speech side. I mean, if you if if you look at like um, Speakeasy, I know I, I mentioned them quite a bit because they they have got a patent essentially on their their speech recognition and their NLU basically works together. I think they do translate to text, but only as a backup, like to make sure that what they've done is right. But basically, they analyze the audio. I think Soundhound have got speech to intent, which does something very similar. And Speechly uh, have a very similar technology as well. I think the the issue with the uh, sometimes, as you referred to, is that when text is widely, widely available, speech data in general is just an absolute nightmare to get hold of because it's invisible, basically. Where do you go to get speech data? It's very difficult. Um, but some... ASRs, not DeepGram, obviously, because you can retrain on top of DeepGram to, to train it based on your terminology. But some providers, if you just use general models sometimes, they can uh, get not just what you were saying in terms of pauses and stuff like that, but some speech models can actually get words wrong. And therefore, presumably, that creates uh, you know problems. And, and sometimes people speak actually different to they type as well. Like mm-hmm. there was a really great example from Oren Jacob. Uh, he was on the show in 2018 before uh, Apple acquired Polestring. Mm-hmm. And one of the great examples he gave was if you if you watch a film based on a book, if mm-hmm. you go to the book and you actually read the dialogue or read the copy in the book. It is entirely different to the script in the film because people talk differently. Is is there anything? Do, are the models that are based on text essentially good enough because words are words and sentences are sentences? Are they broadly speaking good enough to work in a voice environment, or is there significant enough differences to need some work to be done there? I would say the core technology can remain the same um, or is the same. What changes is the data. So if a system which is designed for speech-to-speech systems, even speech are sequence of words, and we have phonemes. Uh, the way we split speech as we have phonemes, we split them into smaller words, like, like sub-words. Hmm. Uh, so, so it's just the change in data. Otherwise, technology is the same. So the work, if we were to implement in terms of speech, is to simply replace the data and make it speech-to-speech. But... Uh, the thing here is, uh, and once we do that, we don't need to have, we will uh, we will probably will not have issues like pauses or we will not have issues like um, uh, the, the way currently we, when, as you said, if ASR system add some or predict something which is incorrect, that completely, completely changes the meaning and therefore the intent becomes uh, misclassified. So those things will go away. But the challenge with speeches, as you said, is it's hard to comprehend them. Those are just wave files. And you cannot simply read, see, and you'll have to entirely, you have to listen that, which takes a lot of time. And storing them is kind of nightmare. They're very big files, mm. uh, especially with the social media. I mean, the current way we have so much, so many big files, it's very hard to store and process. Text on the other end is very fast. It's accessible. But to, to answer your question, the only change which will be required is just the data part of it, mm. most likely. Uh, but the, the challenge again is to how to manage that. So that's why speech and text, text to speech and speech to text are, will still be there for a few years. I think five to 10 years at least, we will not see speech to speech systems. Mm, interesting. And so what would be some examples of where, like where people would see or interact with 
the output of this technology got it ai is it is it chatbots on websites is it kind of like in app technology like what, what are some examples of where it's actually being used and what's the impact on the customer experience uh, yeah so uh well so we have already launched uh faq articles to conversational ai systems or conversational bots so given any faq articles you know every company in this world requires or has faq articles on on their websites so we have already consumed that and once a customer or once a consumer provides their FAQ articles, we give bot within minutes without any human in the loop. And it's a multi-time conversational, depending on how the data is. That part we have already addressed, it's there. And we already have customers and uh, along those lines, I mean, for that. Now we are launching a few things which, can I talk, which I cannot talk about, but emails, chat, and voice, those things are just following up, they're coming up. Uh, and we are working with some of the large, very large companies as well. Uh, very, very large companies, enterprise as well as mid-market, which uh, where we are extending this to chat. Internally, we have done it works. And now we are expanding it to these kind of applications. Some chat applications are also done, but uh, the, we are working on a new version of it, which is much more powerful. So mm -hmm. to, to, to answer your question, where will we see it? We will see it everywhere. Um, uh, wherever there is any conversational data, which is FAQ articles or email or, or chat or voice, we will see these applications. Now, uh, we can also use it for online forums and chat systems, but targeting social conversations and open domain conversation is not our uh, uh, focus yet. Maybe we, at some point we will, but right now we are focusing on these enterprise or mid market or, you know, uh, if I will, these kind of applications. Mm, yeah. And presumably, uh, we mentioned at the kind of earlier on at the top of the show about domain specific, presumably with domain specific data, the, the, accuracy is increased and presumably as a brand or enterprise customer there is a higher likelihood that you can create something that is <clears throat> very accurate <clears throat> excuse me and relatively quick at the same time yes yes um uh, and therefore we have something called a uh, human in the loop which is uh, either the customer or a designer they can always verify so we have historical data and now uh, Within one click, you have this bot in front of you, all the flows and tents. Uh, a human in the loop, which could be a designer, they can always verify. Oh, does this intent look good? Hey, does this paraphrase look good for this intent? So they can always verify in terms of ensuring that uh, the discovered uh, intents, auto intents, we call them, or auto flows, we call them. Are they, uh, do they make sense? Are these reasonable? Do you want to make any tweaks? You can always do it. So that is something which we have a human in the loop, but that is more like verification. Something like in driverless cars, level four, level three systems, where there's some assistance from a user to make sure that the car is not, not hitting, it is doing the right thing and accounting for all the nuances specific to these domains. For example, if, if an autonomous car is designed for highways, let's say in US, will it work for highways in India? right? Mm. Or highways in, say, Europe, or highways where the, the direction is completely opposite, like left, right, left versus right. Mm. So yeah. those kind of nuances will still be there. And that's why we have human in the loop to account for those things. But generally, by and large, as I said, you have base model, base pizza that is ready. Now you can you require tweaks. And that is what we're working on. We have this base pizza or base technology ready. Now we are tweaking on different domains and different applications. Mm. Interesting. So I kind of I think you've you've answered a little bit of this in terms of where the future of like conversation design is, for example. You know, right now there's a lot of people who are working with the, with the kind of well, if what we're talking about here is a transformer based NLU system, what would you refer to the other ones as intent based? Is that 
how you would describe it? Uh, I would say the previous ones were, um, I mean, before Transformers, they were recurrent neural networks. So I would say classical, uh, let's call it classic NLU. Classical okay. NLU. So, so, so cla- classical NLU hasn't even really hit the mainstream yet, really. You know, the, the, I know that it's, it's on everyone's agenda and everyone's exploring lots of different options from voice to chat and all that kind of stuff. Uh, so there's this, there's this emerging blossoming field of conversation design. And those who are predominantly working with chat have predominantly been used to designing flowcharts and actually defining the architecture of a conversation. Some people who work in voice do that. In voice, there's this concept of scenes and how you kind of capture context and move between scenes and all this kind of stuff. But the, but there is a lot of effort required from somebody to figure out where does this thing start and end? What's the parameters and what can we discuss? And how is this conversation? How are we going to get someone to the end of this conversation and resolve their query? As we see more of this technology proliferating, which is just ingesting data and it's it's trained on a billion different samples and it's able to just make decisions on its own, the job then really becomes, as you've alluded to, tweaking, making sure, writing content that, that is the response that the bots will give, you know, measuring the accuracy and, and, and making sure that everything's kind of aligned. Is that where you see the future of what we now know as conversation design? Or is there anything else that you can see changing as far as people's involvement in the creation and management of this stuff? I mean, you, you touched upon a very fundamental aspect, which we are working on. Uh, we are We are empowering or this technology will empower designers. Uh, you see, historically, there were not a lot of conversational AI systems. They were mostly voice, human to human, especially I'm talking about pre-COVID. After COVID, everyone is moving to autonomous systems. And, and I think there is shortage of uh, resources, even human power to build these systems, even conversational designers. So what these tools will make is, or what these tools will do is, they will uh, empower them to ensure uh, or remove a lot of manual work, which typically is repetitive, but it's like we give them, we, we, we make these designers, instead of designing basic things, ensuring that these things are working by and large. And as we update them, just making sure uh, that these systems will work and scale. So it's like moving away from manual repetitive annotations to more like, more like uh, uh, if I will, uh, uh, Deflection rates, working more on the deflection rates, making more on the coverage, making ensuring that these models cover all the various scenarios. If there are not, if some scenarios are missed, they can simply add those things. So these tools will empower them. Mm-hmm. That, that is something which we are getting into. And uh, this will help every designer because the applications, especially after pre uh, post COVID have, have, have emerged. Like there are so many things happening. Even there's a new law in Europe where every company should have a contact center, you know, some some number available to mm. uh, a phone number to call to if they are earning from users or something like that. So mm. the it's it's these tools will help conversational designers to have bigger impact. Yeah, and especially when you're dealing with scale, you know those classical NLU systems are very difficult to properly scale to to a, a large level, and also you've got lots of different business units all potentially over time going to have some sort of conversational front end. That conversation front end likely needs to be consolidated and have one centralized front end entrance front door, so to speak. But then it's not just the website. It's also, as you mentioned, the call center. And then you've got emerging channels like voice assistants. You've got social channels like messenger. You've got messaging channels. So it's almost like for me, 
it's I think there's there's some people in the conversation design community might feel a bit threatened by it, even though the, the industry hasn't even been properly established yet. The reality yes. is it's actually gonna help the whole issue with scale, isn't it? Yes, 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 yes. This will help them scale and make them have broader impact with more applications. Yeah. Mm, yeah. What what are your thoughts on how so how does how do you at Got It AI? You mentioned earlier when we were talking about open dialogues and, and Alexa conversations and conversations that can go anywhere. One of the real challenges has been evaluating them. And mm-hmm. now we're in a situation where we're just ingesting data, producing conversations, uh, really with, with a human in the loop, yes, but it doesn't require a human to build them. How do you approach the evaluation of these systems? A great question. I mean, it's, it's, a, it's one of the areas that we focus or spend a lot of our time on. So what we do is uh, once we discover this, uh, the human in the loop or customer in the loop, what we call them, they uh, get... Uh, a bot to play with. So think of it like there's before going live, before launching, right? Or before deploying within a few clicks, they can play with it and they can give us feedback. So it's that's where the few short learning come into picture here. Mm-hmm. If model is not doing the right thing, they will correct. And that becomes the data for few short learning and that will update the baseline pizza. So if, if the pizza was not very spicy and the designer think that it should be more spicy, they correct it. And next time with few examples, it will be better. So that's what the job here becomes right now. Uh, you, can always, you can always deploy without that, but of course, to ensure a high quality, enterprise level, great quality, you know, those kind of things, you need to uh, have CITL or human in the loop to make, make sure that these nuances are taken care of. So that's what we do here. Before launching, they can always do it. And we also have some automatic ways of evaluation, like sentiments, uh, like sentiment-based evaluation, we also look for some slots. I mean, I, I'm now getting into the details of conversational systems, which is uh, identifying what entities should be looked for. So we have those ways to actually identify if bot is doing the right thing. But those are more auto- automatic uh, ways of evaluating systems. And that is something which we have worked out. I have history of doing that at Alexa Price. So, and my team as well, we have uh, some experience in that. So we have done that. But always there is this human in the loop who can verify and then uh, before deploying, do these make these final tweaks. Mm, yeah it gets challenging i imagine when you get to like a real level of skill you know mm-hmm. you have thousands of conversations a day potentially it's like you can do a lot in that qa phase but i suppose maybe one of the risks is i mean you correct me if i'm wrong maybe one of the risks is that the internal people testing it mm-hmm. either don't use the same vocabulary as the customer um certainly don't have as wide a testing you know it's like if anyone if anyone has ever done any usability testing on any website ever you will know that the people who work there the staff will just pop 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 get to the end of the journey quickly the people who don't work there who are not familiar with the products and services there's always things to be found so i'm wondering whether if there's what are your thoughts on once you get to a scale level of scale where you've gone through the qa and now you're reaching thousands of people per day. How do how do you approach evaluating that? Is it is it human in the loop still, where someone's manually going through conversations? Is there is there any way of of monitoring at scale? That's a, that's a, that's a great question. In fact, um, uh, you you touched upon the next thing that we have already, which is part of the system, is that uh, once you make it live, once you launch it you get feedback from customers. You know that customer is not happy. And you, in that case, you always route them to file a ticket or talk to an agent. There's always an option of, I want to talk to an agent, human agent. Mm. So you know that something went wrong. And then in that case, human agent provides 
uh, fixes the problem, as in they, they they help the user in a better way. So we already have an example. So hmm. we know what bot did, we know where it went wrong, and we know what agent did, or what uh, agent via voice, via text, or via email. We know what they did, and that data is used for updating the system. So it's more like a it's a loop. You hmm. launch it, we get feedback. And with that feedback, we improve the system automatically. So you might have heard of something called active learning, which is once you launch it, you get feedback. And with that feedback, you improve the system. That's a very common uh, technique, not as much in conversational system. It has been more on the recommendation systems and all those things. Uh, so now we, uh, we and a couple of other companies as well, they have brought active learning in conversational AI as well. Currently, the way active learning works in conversational AI system is by designers. They launch, they know these were the wrong ones. And there's manual annotation and labeling, and that is then used as more paraphrases and stuff like that. Because we are discovery-based approach, we automatically discover them, that we know that this thing went wrong. And uh, we also have what was done to fix or eradicate or address that issue. And we use it for as a next time uh, as an update. And that's why, again, it's more like a few shot learning again. This is the wrong one. The correct response is this. This is how we should respond next time. Mm. Yeah, the, the, I think that agent handover thing is crucial, isn't it? Like, that's the best, uh, for, like in my experience, that that's the absolute goldmine for improving these things. And it does require manual effort, but I don't know. I don't know whether we're, at least in, in the next few years, I don't know whether we'll, that'll be automated in general anyway, because you're then dealing with, this is where humans are actually needed, isn't it? It's human ingenuity and human creativity and, and all that kind of stuff to figure out, okay, what in, in this situation where this conversation was handed over and hopefully, you know, it might only happen 80% of the, uh, 20% of the time where this was handed over, what was the issue and how do we fix that? Do you think that that side of things is, is likely to be where the humans add value in future? Of course, I think humans, uh, again, what we have done or what we, the, the way this area is evolving, that could not have been done without the data which humans have provided. So, we will always need humans in the loop. I mean, wherever there is new data, new scenarios, even let's say banking application, suddenly bank launches a new credit card or new line of something product. For that, we don't have any historical data. And for that, what will not work at all? We need humans. So mm. uh, the way humans will be used or will be part of this ecosystem is that they will always be part of the ecosystem is that whenever there are nuances or whenever there are new scenarios, we collect experiences from them and we use them to up build or update the bot and then humans move on to new applications. So it's basically, again, it's like empowering them with newer and newer applications or newer data sets. So that is what which will happen. So all of these tools will empower them. So we are getting into an economy where people first thought that AI will take away jobs and stuff. I don't think so. AI will make them empower them towards more uh, uh, to newer applications, more applications and newer scenarios. Mm. Yeah, agreed, agreed. Um call centers can't recruit for love or money at the moment anyway. And so there's no risk of, of job losses. They need, uh, they need uh, people or things to, to help them manage their demand at the moment. But yeah, no, I am, I'm a huge, huge fan of this, uh, of this, this approach because I mentioned it when we spoke earlier and, and, you know, I think I've mentioned it a couple of times when we've had, you know, companies on that have got similar approaches, which is that, I do feel as though at the moment there's a bit of a stagnation happening in the conversational AI space from a conversation design perspective and from a technology perspective because I think there's almost like a, a settling. We're settling now. Okay, we've got these classical NLU systems. We have a flow-based conversation design approach and now let's just kind of get on with it. And what I think is refreshing <clears throat> 
excuse me, a lot of my background has been basically in disrupting the status quo in service design and digital transformation. It's finding out ways to improve things all the time. Everything can always be made a bit better. And so when I hear these stories and, and you know, speak to people like you with these new approaches, it reinvigorates me a bit because I like to see the disruption happening. It's it's like conversational AI is seen as a disruptive technology, yet we've got this status quo happening. And so people like you and companies like Got It AI, I see as being the disruptors of the disruptors. You're disrupting the disruptors, which I which I love. No, I mean, I'm, I'm I'm glad you brought it up, and I'm I'm, I'm grateful for uh, Got It AI and generally the community itself. It's been very very. Uh, 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 mindful of how to take this technology with broader impact and which also includes how to take everyone together and have bigger applications. So that is something which will happen. And I think it's like, you know, if I take an example of classic ASA systems, previously in ASA systems, people used to maintain these trees, phonemes, flows, if you remember, that was a time. But those people are now doing few things which are more advanced because ASR systems performance is now quite good. But now they are adding and making the systems in a better way, or now are having broader applications in terms of applic- uh, having broader impact in terms of applications. So to your point, Kane, yes, uh, these disruptive technologies will empower uh, people and with more tools so that they can have broader broader impact. Wicked, wicked. Well. I couldn't have finished it better than that, Chandra. Really, really appreciate you joining us on the show. People can go to got-it.ai to find out more. Is there anywhere else they should go, uh, Chandra, if they want to follow your story, uh, you know, learn a bit more about Got It AI? What's the best way for them to to do that? Any other recommendations? Yeah, of course, this website. Thanks for sharing it. Uh, And also, of course, uh, I'm also very active on LinkedIn. Uh, A lot of our people as well part of our got it as well they are very active so if you have any questions if you want to talk happy to uh, do that on linkedin which i'm very active on fantastic wicked well we will share your uh, linkedin profile link and this website link on the show notes uh, and in the descriptions in all of the various places that this podcast is distributed uh, thank you for joining us thank you for uh, for tuning in everybody uh, thank you richard carlos and leslie for your questions and if you're not already subscribed to vux world then where have you been all my life? VUX.world forward slash subscribe. You will get invites to all of these events that we do. At the moment, it's looking like twice a week, often uh, with industry experts like Chandra, uh, and we're doing it every single week, plus our analysis and our uh, you know writing and uh, reports and stuff like that on VUX.world. So please do subscribe, VUX.world forward slash subscribe. Thank you for tuning in. Chandra, it's been an absolute pleasure. Thank you so much for joining us, and we'll see you very soon. Thanks, Ken. Thanks, everyone, for the questions.